0: Well, if you've been with us, you know that we're on a journey looking at the commandments of Christ. We started in September going through June, and we're calling it the Way of Jesus. In the Great Commission, Jesus said that a uh, disciple is one who is being taught to obey all that Jesus commanded. Well, I'd like to tell you tonight that Jesus has done us a favor. Uh, You don't have to keep all of those commandments in mind. In fact, somebody came up with a list and said there's 147 commandments of Jesus uh, in the New Testament. But tonight we're going to go straight to the heart of all the commandments. And Jesus is saying, I'm I'm going to simplify it for you. We're going to get to the core of the core. Uh, Life is short. Major on the majors. So we're shifting tonight from the way of grace to the way of love within our, our series. Jesus was approached by a teacher of the law... And the teacher asked, uh, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? And then Jesus responded with what we call the great commandment. And so we're going to turn to uh, Mark's version of the great commandment in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And then we're going to read that uh, responsively. So I'll start with the first verse that you see on the screen there. And then if you would pick up uh, the uh, other verses, and we'll, we'll rotate back and forth and uh, read through this text of, of Mark. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? You're getting into it. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Some of you may be aware that I have spent some considerable time thinking about the implications of the great commandment, put in book form called The Essential Commandment, A Guide to Loving God and Others. And given the fact that I had spent some time on these instructions of Jesus, uh, Pastor Meyer uh, asked if I would... uh, take some of my final weeks here with you and, uh, in a sense, do my swan song uh, on this particular topic or my farewell tour and uh, share with you some of the discoveries that I had out of this book. And originally, I was scheduled to preach the four Sundays of February, and that's kind of a traditional rhythm that we do, give Pastor Meyer a break from all of his preparation. But knowing that he was going to be away this weekend, I came to him and I said, you know, I'd really like to introduce The great commandment this weekend uh, to kind of set the scene for it and then we can jump right into what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength so tonight I just want to kind of set the background and uh, ask a couple of questions about this text and get us into the whole whole flow the first thing I want us to know is that the great commandment greatly simplifies our central purpose in life now wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have to guess as to what the key to life was all about, that we actually had someone share with us what that key was, well, I think that's exactly what Jesus has done here. Uh, The biblical scholar and and teacher, Dale Bruner, says that the purpose of living is the adoration of God and the cherishing of human beings. The purpose of living is the adoration of God and the cherishing of human beings, period. (laughs) That's what life is all about. And unfortunately... We tend to make it far more complicated than that until tragedy strikes. And then life gets very simple. I remember the first time as a young 30-year-old pastor when it became real clear to me that life really is very basic. It's not all that complicated. I walked out into the late night of a Southern California evening, into the cool of the air, and had that realization because I had just come from St. Joseph's Hospital where a family was camping out, literally in a waiting room, hoping against hope that their son, brother, nephew, cousin would survive a motorcycle accident. Jerry had gone over the front of a car, landed on the back of his head without a helmet, and they were praying, hoping against hope, that their God and the people that they love would surround them and they would see Jerry come back. And I realized that uh, at that very moment that uh, they could have cared less about job promotions. Uh, Figuring out where they're going to go on vacation next was not a part of their thinking. Uh, They could have cared less about an addition on their house or what the latest model car was. All they were concerned about was putting their confidence and trust and hope in God and being surrounded by people that love them. Now, I don't think they were consciously thinking of the great commandment at that point, but they were certainly living out the essentials of of that commandment. So the great commandment oftentimes doesn't really come into clear focus until life gets simplified because some tragedy strikes. So Jesus tells us here that not only what the purpose of life is all about, but he makes it real clear. He tells us on very good authority that that dash that is between the, our birth and whatever date of that death is all about, that dash is all about living out uh, the great commandment. What it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, get to the heart of the matter this evening, I, I want to ask two questions uh, to this text. The first one is, how does the great commandment not simply become one big impossible law to keep? And then secondly, does Jesus really believe it's possible for us to fulfill the great commandment? So the first question, has Jesus just set up a far more stringent law by simply sort of out-Phariseeing the Pharisees? Yeah, Jesus reduces all those laws to one big law, one big command. Now, the most likely motivation for the teacher of the law who came up and questioned Jesus of all the commands, which one is the, most great, is the greatest, was probably to, to test Jesus, to, to even set a, a trap for him. Because you see, the religious leaders of the day, the, the Pharisees, the, the standard bearers of what righteousness was all about, thought they knew how to be right before God. In fact, they had, what, 613 laws that they had committed themselves to keep. And by keeping those laws, they thought they would be made right with God, and that they were the ones who were kind of the the standard of what righteousness was all about. And they were always suspicious of Jesus that he was a lawbreaker, especially when it came to breaking the laws of the Sabbath. You might recall that uh, they called Jesus on the carpet one day because his disciples went through the fields eating the gleanings of the field after the harvest because that was considered work on the Sabbath and they were really concerned that you didn't do work on the Sabbath and had a very clear definitions of what was work and what was not work. It may be even on that same Sabbath day that Jesus went into the synagogue and he healed a man with a withered hand and the Taliban-like... <laughs> Pharisees were watching and wait to see if he would violate the law, and it says in scripture that they plotted the time when they would kill Jesus because they saw him as a lawbreaker. But Jesus was essentially saying, I think, that uh, by reducing the law to a single command, he was saying you don't have to keep all the accounting, all the complications of six hundred and thirteen laws. The Pharisees saw law-keeping as the way to be pleased with God and to measure up. So how does Jesus reducing all the commands to a single command not simply become a greater demand upon us, some hurdle that we have to get over to finally please God like the Pharisees felt the law was all about? Is Jesus simply raising the performance bar, or are we missing something here? I would argue that the command to love God Uh, is not a way to earn our salvation or earn our favor with God, but it's really a response to the grace of God. In response to the God who has extended a gracious invitation and relationship with him, we simply reply by saying, we want to love you back with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love those whom you love as well. Now, where do I get that in the text? Let me turn your attention to how Jesus introduces the great command with the verse Deuteronomy 6-4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's called the Shema. The word here in Hebrew is Shema. If you were to go into any Jewish synagogue, what you would see on the doorpost over the entryway into a synagogue is this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It would be hard to overstate the significance of the Shema to the Jewish people. The Shema says that the law uh, tells us that grace precedes law. A relationship is established in love prior to the expectations that, that go with it. It says that the singular God of the universe has reached down and claimed a people for himself out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord, Yahweh, the I am who I am who made himself known to Moses... Revealed his identity and entered into a covenant relationship with the Jewish people. So we serve a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and I think Moses so wonderfully captured God's love and pursuit of the, of the first of the chosen people, and then of us as extension as the chosen people in this remarkable passage for Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, chapter seven, verses six through nine. For we read. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You are people set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to thousands of generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. So by Jesus invoking the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, prior to the great commandment, He reminds the people that God is the initiative taker. He's the one that comes to us. He's the one who comes and invites us into relationship. He says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. It's not a new high bar that he's setting that says, oh, you have to jump over this in order to to be pleased with you. But he's saying, no, I have committed myself to you in love and invited you into relationship with myself. And in response to that love, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The God of the covenant is a promise-keeping God. I, I love the way uh, Dr. Lewis Smedes puts this in very colloquial terms. He says, the, the Lord is a sort that sticks with those he's stuck with. <laughs> he sticks with those He stuck with. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus gives us a deeper name for the Lord. A more personal name. He calls God Abba Father. And he says, we can have a relationship with this Abba Father because he has come to us and revealed himself to us. And so, therefore, he is full of grace and truth coming into our life. So, what is our response to this covenant making and covenant keeping God? We make covenant with him, we enter into an affectionate relationship with him, we return his love. When we have been loved to the degree that we have by a God who lays down his life for us, the only proper response is to show the same kind of love back. And since God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God, we are most like God when we keep our promises. I think our part in the covenant is kind of like two lovers who pledge their faithfulness to each other on their wedding day. I personally like the traditional wedding vows. So it was 42 years ago that I said the following. I, Greg, take you, Lily, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And I can say to you, after 42 years of love that has been tested by changing yesterdays and who knows what tomorrow will bring that I don't say to my wife I guess I have to love you because I've made a commitment to do so what a drag (laughs) I say thank you God for giving me somebody who loves me and I love back and it's not a chore to give love back in return and just so I love God not because I should or ought, but because he's claimed me as his own and deserves my full affection. Some of us are very fond of uh, John Ortberg's statement when he says that no one can be a follower of Jesus because they think they should. You actually have to want it. And what makes for that want to in our relationship with him? The knowledge of the God of the universe has chosen to place his affection on us. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's revealed his identity to us. He's called us into relationship with himself. And so our response is not some high bar we have to jump over in order to get God's attaboy, but simply, thanks. I can't believe that you would have the likes of me. What can I do for you? That's the response of the great commandment. But let me take you to the question that truly got under my skin and served as the motivation for writing the book, The Essential Commandment. Here's the question. Would Jesus ask me to do something that couldn't be done? Really, Jesus? Is this possible? The energy that behind the efforts to write The Great, the great uh, Commandment or The Essential Commandment comes from the insight uh, that, frankly, is a, a bit embarrassing It's embarrassing because as a pastor for 38 years, I should know better. The insight I'm about to share with you is also embarrassing because it may not seem at first very profound. And I have been somewhat sheepishly apologetic when I've shared this wonderful insight. But here it is. Jesus actually thinks that we can become like him. Jesus actually believes that it's possible for frail and flawed human beings to focus our complete affection on God and others. Now, the key word here is possible. I had unconsciously given up the possibility of actually doing what Jesus commanded. No, I never had consciously thought or even said, Jesus, uh, I think you're an idealistic dreamer. (laughs) Come on, Jesus, isn't this a little too much to ask from flawed human beings? Don't you know what we're made of? No, I added that myself to what Jesus had called us to be about. And in my attempt to live an authentic life and not fool myself about myself, I had dismissed the upside possibility that I could actually love God and others. In other words, have the character of Jesus take over my life. And when I became aware that I had inwardly dismissed Jesus' belief in the possibility of fulfilling the great commandment, I came to realize that we hold two truths in dynamic tension with each other. On the one hand, we need to vigorously be honest about our shortcomings. Part of what it means to live in the light of Christ is to allow his light to shine, his torchlight on the hidden recesses of our own soul, where all of our junk is. Yet at the same time, we need to hold on to this compelling vision that this same light illumines our path so that we can live in our potential as being God and people lovers. There's an interesting old Hasidic saying or phrase that says that we should walk around with two different pieces of paper in our pocket. On one piece of paper, we have the words, I am dust and ashes. And on the other piece of paper, we find the words, for me, the world was created. Yes, on the one hand, we are just stuff of the earth from dust to dust and ashes to ashes. But we're also people in whom Jesus has placed his very life and set us apart for his dwelling place. So would Jesus ask us to do something that can't be done? Would he do that? It was in dwelling on this possibility, this kind of upside potential, that I found myself kind of filled with a new energy, a a sense of buoyancy, A sense of, my, Jesus believes in me that I can be that kind of person. Jesus thinks it's possible for me to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus, is it even possible that I could love my enemies and do good to those who want my harm? Is it possible for that to even be my automatic response to him? See, this is the paradox of the Christian life. On the one hand, I I dare not lose touch with the dark side potential of my life. Because if I do, I fail to appreciate the incredible grace that is embraced and desires to tame this rebel. I must come to God with the same attitude that an alcoholic comes (laughs) that says, I am powerless over alcohol. I am powerless over sin in my life. Because I've left to myself... Frankly, I don't love God and care about my neighbor. In fact, I I hate God and only care about myself. And so the irony is when we come to the point of admitting our own inner corruption is when we experience the grace of God. Paul says in Ephesians, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's when we admit our need that we experience that grace. And it's the energy of that grace that leads us into our potential, that lifts us up from where we have been to be able to become what God intends us to be. I love the statement from Dallas Willard. He says that grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. The Apostle Paul experienced this. What does he say of himself? I am the greatest of sinners. And yet, it was the awareness of that and the grace of God embracing him that turned him into an energetic person on behalf of God. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. So what does this grace produce? When we admit what we are and experience and embrace by grace, then we are lifted up to that point that says, I want To love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love those whom God loves. To love my neighbor as myself. So how is this possible? What do we have to kind of be taken through to get to that place where that will be the case? Can we, in fact, get to the point where the Feelings, thinking, and the actions of Jesus himself become a part of us. Is that possible? Well, Dallas Willard, again, helps me here by taking us through three levels of the will, and this is what I'll conclude with tonight, the direction in which we are going. He says to, for transformation to take place in our lives, we have to go through three different t- transformations in a sense. The first one nature of the will he calls simply the impulsive will that the impulsive will is directed and moved by and towards things that are simply attractive this is where a baby starts something bright and shiny happens in their environment and they want to reach out to it sometimes people don't get much beyond being babies in this world do they They become impulsive simply as we grow up to adults. We just go after whatever our hearts desire, whatever we want. Do I need to even illustrate this? I'll simply mention the Kardashians, okay? Let's go on. That's the impulsive will. We want something, you know, glitzy and shiny in our environment. But for Christians, we move to another level, and that is the reflective will. We begin to set up a dialogical process where the good that God intends is examined over against our thinking, feeling, and acting. In other words, we reflect regularly on our life in light of Scripture. We bring our lives before Scripture and we ask the questions. What's the gap here between my life and the scriptural picture of how to live? One of the ways that I try to do this in my life on a regular basis is to practice what is called the tradition of the examine. It's a fancy word that simply says I try to start each my day in prayer looking back to the previous day, asking God, Lord, where were you in that day? Uh, where did you show up? What, where were you in various events and conversations that I had with people? Where did I miss you? I, I call this praying backwards, simply trying to reflect on what has gone on. Before I turn the page on to a new day, to look back on a previous day and ask God these questions of, Did did I miss you somewhere? Did I misspeak something? Do I I need to write a note of apology? Do I need to write a note of thanksgiving for that conversation? And simply reflect on what my life is about. So I get to both celebrate God's presence and then kind of capture missed opportunities. But then Willard says, not only are we to be involved in the reflective will, but we can take it even deeper. And that is what he calls the embodied will. And this is where my aha came from. Willard, echoing Jesus, I think, says, it's possible to become so aligned with Jesus' heart that our automatic responses are simply in tune with God's heart. Let me say that again. That our automatic responses can be so in tune with Christ that that becomes the way we respond. This is how I apply this to myself. Suppose after worship this, this, this evening, I'm standing out there greeting people, and someone comes up to me and says, Greg, I don't get why you want to be a preacher or a teacher. I mean, you show no evidence of having that gift. I mean, what were you thinking of when you went into this profession? Could my automatic response be take that insult and just strike back? or have continuous goodwill for that person and seek their best as an automatic response. The embedded will, embodied will of God could be so deep that that would be my response and reaction. To be formed in Christ is to say, yes, it's possible. Yes, this is what I want my inner world to become. I want to be so in tune with Jesus' life in me that his embodied will comes my will. So I'm suggesting tonight that the Christian life is about a liberating paradox, seeming contradiction. On the one hand, we need to stay f- true to understanding our flawed nature, that there is never a time when we don't need grace. It's always grace in which we stand covering the things that we have done or have not done, we always need mercy. There's never a time when we step beyond that. Yet God has chosen to put his truth in these clay pots, these earthen vessels, you and I, being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, which is his spirit. God thinks enough of us to abide in us and then set off on his work of renovation. And Jesus commands us to love God and the ones for whom he laid down his life because he believes that we actually can do it. And here's the irony. That living God's possibility is only possible when we confess the impossibility. It's possible to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is it? Only when we first admit an impossible no... And then we are embraced by God's possible yes. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Dear Father, we hear your call to love you with everything that we are. And to love those whom you infinitely value. Are you asking us to do something that is not really possible? Part of us confesses that we are only weak creatures whose passion for you can only be described as tepid. We hear that you want us to engage our hearts, souls, minds, and bodies in full devotion to you, yet when we look at our lives, we feel that we are, have a pale comparison in relationship to your expectation. If we're going to be what you want us to be, we will need an infusion of love that is not our own. Yet we so want to live into your belief in us. As we embark on this journey together, create a sense of anticipation that you will stretch our capacity beyond what we ever thought was imaginable so that we can live into your possibility for us. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen.